0: I don't usually watch shows like Britain's Got Talent but about 10 years ago so many people were linking to the same video that I decided to check it out. You might be familiar with this show or others like it, unknown hopefuls perform a talent between, before a live audience and a panel of judges who either disqualify them or move them on in the competition. It's pretty simple. In this video, when they called the next contestant, a stocky, middle-aged woman in an outdated beige dress strode on stage. She had a bit of a unibrow and kind of graying, frizzy hair, in marked contrast to the panel of carefully made-up celebrity judges and most of the audience. And in the moments of chit-chat before her performance, it became apparent that she was also not very good at at reading social cues. It was all terribly awkward, and I was already cringing a little bit when they cued the music for her solo. Part of the fun of these shows is watching hopefuls bomb miserably and then making fun of them, and this seemed sure to happen. Instead, though, jaws began to drop all over the room as Susan Boyle burst forth with the opening lines of, I dreamed a dream, in tones so lovely that people were moved to tears. She got a standing ovation before she hit the first chorus. Her audition was viewed 93.5 million times in the first 11 days after it went up, and it became the most viewed video on YouTube in 2009. Why is that? What accounts for that level of international interest in one amateur unknown singer? I think the reason that that video moment went viral on the net was because we all identify with the judges in the audience and we all identify with Susan Boyle. Like the judges' shows and its audience, all of us share... A vicious and irrational tendency to judge on appearances. And like Susan Boyle herself, all of us long to be seen and known for more than we appear to be. One of the judges of this show told Susan after her solo, when you walked up here everybody was laughing at you, but nobody's laughing now. Another of the judges said, we were all against you. I think we were really being quite cynical. It's fascinating that both judges felt confident speaking for the whole audience in saying, we were laughing at you, we were against you. What was Susan Boyle guilty of to merit this kind of treatment? Number one, she hadn't worked sufficiently hard to try to achieve the beauty standards of the day. And number two, she lacked some social grace. That's it. Those are pretty superficial criteria, But that's how we tend to judge most people when it comes to determining who's a winner and who's a loser. Well, thank goodness that kind of shallow, superficial way of relating only happens in the entertainment industry. (laughs) Right? Surely things in the church are different. James starts off our passage today with straightforward instructions. Brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is warning us away from the problem of partiality, also called the problem of favoritism. And those terms, partiality, favoritism, are both quite accurate, but I've chosen to frame the mark of faith positively as disinterested love. This is in reference to verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. The kingdom of this world trains us to treat people according to whether we stand to gain something by association or whether we feel we'll lose something if we draw near them. That's a way of relating to people according to our own self-interest. But the royal law in the kingdom of God is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is, we are to love others as full, complete, complex persons, worthy of respectful and dignified treatment, not just as projections of our own hopes and fears. Disinterested love is not at all like a lack of interest. A disinterested person is simply a person who is able to love others without constantly referencing his or her own personal interests it's a love that sees the value and needs of others clearly unclouded and unbiased by one's own fears and lusts it is godlike love disinterested love is the mark of faith let's see how it plays out on a sunday morning gathering for worship in james's day at verse seven, for if a poor man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Does this ring a bell? Maybe or maybe not. I've never actually seen people at Emanuel assigning seats to newcomers based on how well-dressed they are. We might even feel a little offended by the suggestion that we could be guilty of such blatant discrimination. But we need to do more work before we move on. What principles are at work behind James's example? We have to translate equivalencies from first century Jerusalem to 21st-century Chicago. It's not the 1980s here anymore. We're not so into conspicuous consumption. Um, Far from valuing silk suits and pinky rings as signs of power, some of the most successful men in America make a point of showing up to work in jeans and hoodies. And as Americans who love equality, or at least the idea of equality, we are not as into seats of honor as we used to be either time was, the wealthy churchgoers paid for priority seating in church, but you'd be hard-pressed even to figure out the best seat in the house (laughs) here at Uplift. (laughs) Even our top dog, Aaron, who we want to honor, just sits in the front row of the folding chairs. (laughs) Whoop-de-doo. And most people really tend to avoid these chairs, even now that we've upgraded from those orange plastic ones to these classier black ones, but... But the language James uses to describe the man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes could better be translated as a golden-fingered man dressed in shining raiment. Looking at him, you can just tell he's someone special. His aura is the right color. This dude seems like someone worth checking out. By contrast, the language describing the man in shabby clothes could be translated as the man in filthy clothes. The KJV version renders this as a vile raiment, and it has moral overtones. This guy just seems like he's an unsavory character. So it's not merely that one man is be- better dressed than the other, one in newer, more expensive clothing, and the other in older, less expensive clothing but that the observer is having two very different experiences of these people based on first impressions. One is like, oh, wow. And the other is like, uh, yes. James is pressing into the powerful internal responses we all have to people we're meeting for the first time. Based on nothing but the most superficial data, we find ourselves wanting to please one person and wanting to avoid and distance ourselves from the other. At one level, these reactions are quite natural. Why wouldn't we prefer a smart-dressed, nice-smelling man to one with a whiff of sweat and urine and beer around him? But James says to favor the person we find more appealing is to reveal ourselves to be judges with evil thoughts. It might be natural but it is not okay. To apply scripture to our lives then, we have to get familiar with our subconscious responses, our evil thoughts, and become aware of how those responses then direct our behavior. Again, usually without thinking about it. So we ask ourselves, to whom are we attracted, and by whom are we repulsed? Whom does that well-dressed man represent to you? Well, with whom do you like to be seen? Maybe it is the sharp-dressed fellow or the well-put-together woman, stylish, urbane, well-educated. But the cool kids are different for different people. Maybe you long to hang with a tattooed and nose dring crowd. Maybe you prefer folks who can name-drop the latest artists or who espouse the popular causes. Who impresses you, and whom do you long to impress? We become judges with evil thoughts when we are kind to attractive people, not out of genuine regard for them, but for how they might enhance our own lives, or at least boost our self-image. At the other end, whom do you tend to ignore or avoid? Clearly, our nation is biased against people with dark skin, and strong accents. Some of us might initially be put off by an androgynous person dressed in rainbow colors, or a guy sporting a vote Republican button. If there is any category of people that tends to put you on edge right from the get-go, know that this is a population you may be at risk for objectifying. But often it is the materially poor we avoid most assiduously. In any society, folks living in extreme poverty are living, breathing incarnations of humanity's worst fears. Fears of marginalization, loneliness, helplessness, disease, mental illness, weakness. We become judges with evil thoughts when we treat the poor rudely, or ignore them as much as possible because we can't bear to be confronted with our own profound vulnerability. I don't think we realize how much power these subconscious inclinations wield in our lives, but it's hard to explain otherwise how completely we insulate ourselves against close association with the poor who are all around us and among us. The fact that this segregation is maintained so effectively, even though we're not doing it on purpose, means that there are powerful forces at work. Now, James does not spend time unpacking the nature of our evil thoughts. He leaves that work for us to do. But instead, he moves on to identify three serious problems that God has with this way of living. First, James points out that we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one we claim to follow. Verse 5, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It is nonsense to call ourselves subjects of King Jesus and then to dishonor those he has chosen to honor. When we choose to dishonor members of a group God has chosen us to honor, we are acting as God's enemies against him. When we dishonor the poor through neglect, we reveal ourselves as rebels against the kingdom of God, and we're showing our allegiance to the kingdom of this world and its values. Later in this letter, James becomes even more explicit. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? The world may not know better, but we are without excuse. We know that God specifically chose those who are poor, in earthly terms, to be rich in faith. In fact, we can read in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. If the first problem with discrimination is that it reveals our worldliness, the second is that it reveals our foolishness. Verses six and seven, are not the rich the ones who oppose you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? It's an embarrassing but pretty common problem. Often the people we are most eager to please are those who are bullying and intimidating us. The gold-fingered man in shining raiment represents a class of people who are actually exploiting the congregation James wrote to. The first wave of believers were primarily low-status folks, decidedly unpopular with the wealthy and powerful people. The wealthy people were oppressing the Christians and blaspheming God, yet the congregation went out of their way to curry favor with them. Is it hard to understand how this might happen, or is it easy to relate to? Now, in our own context, Christians are not typically victims of oppression, but we are pretty likely to run into people who just do not like Christians. I don't know about you, but I can spend a lot of time and emotional energy trying to get people who could not be less interested in Jesus to like me. Sucking up proving I'm not like those Christians, showing I'm the exception that they ought to admire when they don't really want to hear it. Why do I do that? Sadly, it's not because I love them or because I long for them to see Jesus as he is. I love what I think their approval will give me. The third problem with discrimination is the most serious, When we allow self-interest to run our relationships, we violate the law of God and set ourselves at risk on the day of judgment. Verses 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. To me and you, it might seem unreasonable for James to call out such a common human fault like favoritism and say that puts us on the same level of murderers and adulterers. That doesn't seem quite fair. But James is saying God's law might look to us like a collection of disparate rules, do's and don'ts, some more important than the others. But the law of God is actually one seamless whole comprised of loving God and loving others. Wherever we fall short of the law of disinterested love, we become lawbreakers. This is a hard word. But James is simply repeating the teachings of his brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself raised the bar on righteousness in his Sermon on the Mount, showing how he must avoid sins of the heart, like favoritism, and not just big actions. Hatred as well as murder, lust as well as adultery. Verses 12 and 13 then so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. If we are not week in and week out, year in and year out, correcting our native impulses to objectify others, we are lawbreakers with evil thoughts awaiting judgment. Where does that leave us, brothers and sisters? I believe that all of us are heavily bent toward the sins of favoritism and partiality. That it is our default practice to enter new relationships with our own needs and preferences at the forefront. That we avoid the materially poor to the extent that we have not made peace before God with our deepest fears and insecurities. Yet James makes it clear with the strongest language that if our faith does not compel change, in these areas, if we don't have this mark of faith, that unless we show mercy to others, mercy will not be shown to us. What's to become of us then? Avoiding hatred and lust is hard enough. Now I have to figure out how to reverse a lifetime of favoring the cool kids over the people who make me uncomfortable. This feels like a heavy burden. Thanks be to God that the law of God is the law of liberty. Mercy triumphs over just judgment. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we were given the law of God. That law was and is beautiful and powerful and praiseworthy, but it was also the law we were unable to keep. God knew that in ourselves, that precious law of God could only bring condemnation to us because we are unable to honor it. And so he sent his son Jesus to fulfill the law on our behalf. We and ourselves are pitiful, miserable creatures, unable to love anyone but ourselves. But in Christ, the law ceases to be merely a set of external commands and heavy obligations. In Christ, the law is written in our hearts as he conforms our will and desires more and more in accord with his own perfect character." He changes who we are. As one theologian, Alexander McLaren, writes, this law, James says, is perfect because it is more than law and transcends the simple function of command. It not only tells us what to do, but it gives us the power to do it. Therefore, says James further, this perfect law is freedom. Of course, liberty is not exemption from commandment, but the harmony of will with commandment. Whosoever finds that what his duty is, is his delight, is enfranchised. We are set at liberty when we walk within the limits of that gospel, and they who delight to do the law are free in obedience, free from the tyranny of their own lusts, passions, inclinations, free from the domination of men and opinion and common customs and personal habits. Then the burden that I carry carries me. The law of liberty frees us to love disinterestedly. Jesus can give us his heart, liberating us from sin and fear and self-interest. The Holy Spirit has the power to truly transform us making us more and more capable of a disinterested love beyond anything we can currently imagine. I have a friend, Charlie, who is an EMT, an emergency medical technician. Not long ago, his team was called to pick up a woman off the streets who was struggling with a host of problems, both physical and mental. She was covered in layers and layers of bile raiment. And the team noticed right away that the odor coming off of her was unusually foul. During her assessment at the ER, they saw that her feet and legs were wrapped in bandages. As they unwound the bandages, the source of the odor became clear. The flesh of her legs had been so damaged, it had begun to decay. And what's more, embedded in the flesh were live insect larvae. Nobody on the EMT team wanted to deal with this. Talk about a situation geared to elicit our visceral fear of death. But Charlie's a believer, and he reasoned like this. Someone has got to remove these larvae, and she cannot do it herself. I will do it. And he got to work, ministering mercy to her. Now, I don't think I'm cut out to be an EMT, but I want to love like that. Don't you? Don't we want to be free from the petty fears and outsized lusts and chronic enslavement to self? Don't we want to be free to love without self-interest? This is the freedom we are promised in Christ Jesus. The mark of faith is disinterested love. And even if our faith is now as all as a mustard seed, in Christ it can grow to be the largest tree in the garden of your soul with branches so big that the birds of the air can come and make their nests there. We cannot gin up disinterested love in ourselves but we can assiduously cultivate love in our lives. And there's a difference. The love of Christ flows into us freely, unmerited, mercifully toward us. There's nothing we can do to manufacture that love. That comes from the outside of us. What we can do and what we must do is to receive and cultivate that love through faithful action, as we read earlier in James I assert that there are two important components to cultivating love for the poor and others whom we tend to avoid. The first concerns receiving the freedom and mercy that God brings to us. If you remember the words of a Christmas carol that we sing to Jesus, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. When we intentionally and habitually bring our hopes and fears to Jesus, we don't then need to project them on the bruised and frail people around us, rich or poor. When our needs are met in Jesus and the law of God written on our hearts, we grow in our capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. We become free to love others with a disinterested love. The other component is cultivating that freedom of mercy into our relationships with other people, particularly the poor, That is something that is habitual and intentional. Uh, God seems to give a particular priority to the poor, and we're called to imitate him in that. I don't think that God loves the poor more than he loves the rich, but he intentionally and consistently, Old Testament and New, identifies with the poor and calls his people to attend to them, to give them attention. We can do this without loving the rich less than we love the poor we can love the poor more than we currently do. When it comes to disinterested love for the poor, I think quite often of a quote from a Catholic philosopher, Father Gustavo Gutierrez, you say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? I'm going to quote briefly from a blog that sourced this quote for me. I'd heard it long before I knew who said it. You say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? I love this question because it reminds me that for any issue, it's essential to bring everything back to actual relationships with actual people. Without barbecues and phone calls, birthday greetings, and actually knowing people's names, how can I say that I care about the poor? Here at Emmanuel, we refer often with a genuine sorrow to the terrible divisions of our city, divisions of race and class that lead to poverty, segregation, injustice, and inequality, inequity. As believers, we can and must invest our time and creativity in seeking large-scale, long-term solutions to systemic problems. But these efforts can only be enhanced by closer personal proximity with the poor. We must encounter the poor first as persons to be loved, not as our projects or as problems to be managed. Without intentional incarnational proximity to the poor, where is this mark of faith in our lives? What might this look like practically? How can we begin to overcome subconscious but deeply rooted habits of making distinctions among ourselves? (coughs) Now, there are probably a thousand different ways we could begin, but since James speaks of seating arrangements, we'll do the same we can ask ourselves, what seats do I have to offer those I encounter? I may or may not be able to offer seats of power or privilege to the poor, but everyone can offer seats of proximity and priority. We all have the power to invite people to sit near us. And if we are always only filling those seats of proximity and priority, with middle class or upper class folks, we have to ask ourselves, am I acting as one who will be judged under the law of liberty? Taking faithful action in this regard may not be easy or comfortable, but praise God, it can really be kind of simple too. Think about seats of proximity at church. When we sit down in church, we generally have a seat open to our left and a seat to the right. Who sits there? to whom can we offer these seats? Who has offered proximity to me? Now think about seats of priority at our tables or in our homes. When we sit at our own table, who is given priority for those invitations? Who is invited to sit with us? Think of maybe of the last three or four times you invited someone over um, for a meal or just to hang out. Were any of those people materially poor? Do we regularly invite the material of poor into our home or to share our lives in some small way? If not, I encourage you to covenant with another believer here at Emmanuel to do this just three or four times within the next 12 months. Again, this really isn't easy, but it's not really hard either. As we develop the diamond virtue of endurance in our lives, faithful actions like these are the thin edge of the wedge in overcoming what James calls the divisions among us. And if you're interested in making this kind of change to your life, but really don't know how, please come talk to me. I'd be delighted to connect you with others who can help. We are a people, a church together. The power of sin over our hearts and in our world is real. So much is working against us to corrupt us into living as judges with evil intent. But Christ has overcome all. The law of liberty frees us to love every person we encounter free of self-interest. To love the rich without reference to our own lust for recognition, power, acceptance, that's a mark of faith to love the poor without reference to our own fears of marginalization, of guilt, of death. What liberty? May this be ours. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.